Hello and welcome to another episode of Roy's Cast, the official podcast of the Ridings of Yorkshire Society. We're your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright, and today we're joined by Jamie Topless Yates, aka Whole History Nerd. So today we're going to be talking about his experiences using YouTube as a medium, some of his upcoming projects, and generally who is the Whole History Nerd. So Jamie, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, yes, I'm Jamie. Um, most people know me as Whole History Nerd through the videos. Um, and I make videos on YouTube about the history of Hull and the East Riding, and sometimes about railways elsewhere in Yorkshire as well. So one of the first things we wanted to really crack into is is what's your your background going into this? Um, sort of your, your university education, things like that, how it how it relates or how it doesn't relate? It doesn't relate in the slightest. Um, I actually concentrated in my A-levels on sociology, psychology and English language and then I went on and did psychology at uni, so completely irrelevant to history, unfortunately. Um, but it did give me a lot of tools to actually have that academic background. It did give me the tools of knowing how to research and what to research and where to research. Um, and picking up the historiography side of it was it was very handy because Kate, my partner, actually is a historian. She she did train. She has got a, a master's in in that, and uh, so she could steer me when I was going wrong and say, "No, you can't make that kind of conclusion. That's not what historians do." <laughs> I'm like, okay, fair enough. And so I've, I've learned stuff from that, and and history is a, is a fascinating thing when you're doing it the way that I'm doing it, when you, you're kind of pulling together bits and pieces for videos. Um, I think people think that I'm an expert, but I'm not an expert. I listen to experts and I find out the stories that experts tell me and then I stitch them together into a, a narrative that is interesting. And then in, t in turn, I learn stuff about, about the history of it. So it's fascinating for me from all points. Yeah, um, so going off that, where where did the love of history come from? Because obviously now it's it's, you know, it's your seems like you're calling almost yeah um railways basically i was obsessed with old whole railways to the point where i was walking them and looking for things like bridge abutments and bits of wall that might have been left from an old bridge over the road you know just scouring old ordnance survey maps and then just looking for the signs of it above ground and um at the same time, me and my partner started watching a few YouTube channels like Martin Zero, and, and he's an urban explorer from Manchester. But unlike a lot of urban explorers, he doesn't just tromp around abandoned buildings going, oh, look at this, this is great. He actually goes in and tries to wonder what these structures were. What was this? What is that? And then he'll do a voiceover because he'll have researched it afterwards where he'll tell you, well, I was nearly right. This is a water wheel that powers blah, blah, blah. And you learn so much stuff about it. And I, I was thinking, this is great. Why is nobody doing a video like this in Hull? Because we got loads of history. Our railways are, are, were immense at one point, And now we've just got a couple of lines and that's it. And I think eventually Kate probably just got tired of me saying this. And she just said, well, why don't you just get your camera and do a, a YouTube video yourself? And I just went, well, okay, maybe I will. So I did. <laughs> went and did some research into it and, and started putting some episodes together. Um, I fully expected to have about three people tune in and, and, and be interested in Railways from Hull. It's very niche. Um, but actually, they started getting quite popular, which was a big surprise. Yeah, and I suppose another thing is, is so what, what experiences helped you become familiar? Because, I mean, we're, we've started this podcast, but part, part of this has been actually learning the tools of the trade, I suppose. So what 
did you have any experiences before that allowed you to, to adapt to YouTube so quickly and, and yeah. particularly like videography and things like that? I, I'd been a photographer for years, so I've already had, I, I always had quite a, a, a reasonable eye for a good shot. And I've always wanted to translate that into video. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to hang out with a bunch of people who were on a media course. And I think by osmosis, I, I kind of learned a whole bunch about recording videos because I used to I used to help them do their, their videos for their projects. So I learned all sorts of stuff about not having white flash edits and how to, how to do good sound editing and so forth. Um, so I picked up a lot of stuff by accident almost and other stuff you could just pick up from the internet and from YouTube. And I'm one of those people who's quite a critical watcher. So when I watch something, I often look at the technical aspects of it and I'm thinking, how have they done that? How's that work? Because that was really good. I liked that. And then I'll go and dig at it and find out how to do that and then come back and you might see that in another episode of my videos. It's, it's just one of those things. I, I, I absorb stuff and I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the media aspect of it. So the, the video making side of things fascinates me and it is another obsession, I guess, if you like. So it's a collision of my obsession with railways and my obsession with wanting to make videos about something but never having anything to make videos about. So <laughs> it's worked out nicely in the end. And and what made you choose YouTube? Because I think one of the interesting things about the conference that we did in, in June was that we were sort of surprised by the amount of people that were using YouTube as a medium to put forward history. So yeah. what made what made YouTube the platform that you felt was the best for your what you wanted to do in terms of the videos you wanted to make? I think it's fairly ubiquitous. Everybody knows YouTube. Um, and really, for, for videos, there aren't as many good uh, platforms. Vimeo, nobody knows, apart from professionals. Um, you have places like um, Twitch, which is mainly for live streams and stuff like that. And you have other stuff... Um, like TikTok, which is mainly for short videos, which didn't really suit what I was doing. Although yeah, I keep thinking about whether or not I should do some TikTok, but then I wonder how, how interested teenagers are actually going to be in what I'm selling. <laughs> so there, there is that. Um, so YouTube seemed to be the natural one. Everybody I watched was doing YouTube videos. YouTube was fairly good when it comes to um, quality and for length of videos. And also it's free. So nobody has to sign up to anything to, to watch it. And I've always had this thing that I, I want my videos to be free for anybody to, to watch. I know people have said, oh, are you thinking of putting them on videos and DVDs so that we can watch them at home? I'm like, not really, no. Because apart from the nightmare that would result from the the, um, the rights of photos and so forth, um, I don't necessarily feel comfortable charging people money for something they can just go on youtube and watch for free it it, it just seems a bit weird <laughs> exactly. that, that's something we we sort of think quite is is quite important about what we're doing with roy's as well is is that open access almost as it were yeah. to to the information um sort of building on what you were saying uh we just wanted to get some of your thoughts about youtube as a medium for history overall sort of how useful you'd say it is or, or how engaging you'd, you'd find it to be I think it can be really, really good. I really do. I think it's one of those interesting things. And I often compare myself to, if you, if you imagine history as a coal mine, I always imagine the academic historians 
like the, the miners at the coal phase of history they're the ones getting this fine-grained detailed statistics and data and individual sources and they're the ones putting out this really highly detailed work and what i'm doing really is i'm sitting at the top going through the carts going this will make a good story and this will make a good story and this will make a good story but i'll just leave out all those charts and all those data charts and tables and those long long lists of things and I will just make this into an interesting narrative because what what I think YouTube is really good for is translating the the perhaps very detailed but maybe a little intimidating academic stuff and giving that to people who are not academic historians who have just got an interest in it. We we can translate that into something that's actually engaging and interesting and, and makes people go, I didn't know that. And then they can go away and learn more if they want to. You know, they want to look into it. I, w I never think that my videos are like the be-all and end-all of whatever subject I'm looking into. There will always be bits that I have chosen not to include, that I've chosen not to cover because it would have made the video too long or it didn't fit the narrative. But those are things that are left for people to pick up on themselves when they want to go and look into it a little bit more. I think that's an interesting... Um, it's, it's like a, a stepping-off point for people, YouTube. I think that's really its best role in that sense. I suppose really the, the the proof of YouTube's success in that in that work is is in the pudding, as you might say, because your channel has become immensely popular, particularly around around in Hull. I mean, I know for a fact, training as a tour guide, that several members of our tour guide group used were regular watchers of the videos to try and help build the stories that we want to tell the public in person. So, I mean, how does how does going from a hobby that you was like, well, why don't you make those videos for people, and and now being faced with, as you said, a video. The, the most recent video that gets more video more views than ever, ever before so i mean how how has it been how's that experience been mad yeah <laughs> surprising um yeah i mean I, I genuinely expected to get a handful of viewers for my videos because i thought you know can you possibly get more niche than the, the history of railways in whole probably not and and yet there's something about railway history that grabs a certain type of person there's some people who are just really into it and really want to know about it and i started getting this this collection of of followers um and but before i'd finished the series on the on the railways which is just six videos um i i got recognized in public for the first time which was awesome this this chapter i was just walking through paragon station and i just heard this chap behind me going whole history nerd whole history nerd and this 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 uh, little elderly chap was sort of like running up to me going i love your videos i think they're absolutely wonderful i was like oh um thank you <laughs> i was just such a surprise to have something like that happen like i can't believe i've just been recognized that's bizarre um so so that was an interesting thing then once i started breaking out of the the railway videos i started I think perhaps engaging a wider audience in Hull with the docks because a lot of people in Hull know somebody who worked at the docks or somebody who was perhaps on the trawlers um, and I think those videos have been very successful because not only do they talk about that but they also cover the history of Hull in general because the history of Hull, Hull's docks is the history of Hull. Hull is just a port. It was built as a port purpose-built by the monks at Muse Abbey for that very reason so yeah, it, it, those videos covered a lot of ground in terms of Hull's medieval history and its its uh, its subsequent rise during the Industrial Revolution. Um, so that brought in more people, and you get to the point where I've 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 now got like over eight thousand subscribers 
and people keep asking me to do talks and I've been into schools to give talks and yeah it it, it, it makes me realize that what's happened here is that my obsession with railways is actually now become quite an important part of of engaging local people with their with their history and I do think there's a need for that because I think for decades Hull's been the punching bag of the media you know whenever it's mentioned anywhere in national media it's always as a as a kind of a joke oh look at Hull's poverty look at Hull's teenage mothers look at Hull's wrecks and ruins and urban decay and and I think we've started to internalize that a little bit because you talk to people from Hull and they go oh, yeah well Hull's rubbish isn't it I'm like, no, it's it's no more rubbish than any other northern town. Every northern town has got its has got its decay. Every northern town has got its lost industries and its its poverty. We are no different to somewhere like Liverpool or Manchester or Doncaster in that respect. You know, we've lost a lot. And the reason we've fallen so far is because we had so far to fall in the first place. And so my videos, I wanted to really show people that they didn't have to be ashamed of Hull and of being from Hull, because actually Hull was a really important city, really important. For hundreds of years, it was important. And it's really only in living memory that that's kind of fallen by the wayside as industries have decayed and for reasons outside our control, like big ships not being able to get this far up the Humber, for instance, so Immingham took over the dock duties or the fall of the fishing industry. That's not our fault. We, we didn't make the hole that we fell into. And we should actually not feel bad about that. We should feel instead perhaps a bit proud of, of what our city's heritage is. I think as well, I think what you're saying there, it, it, it shows that the appetite is there. And I think that's it's not something that is often perceived or understood particularly from, as you say, the historians at the coalface. It's it sometimes it, it's difficult to, to understand actually the, the appetite that is there hidden away in, in places like Hull to hear the stories of what this place used to be. And I think when you meet people in the town, they're like, well, I never knew I never knew anything about what this area is or, or, what, or what this used to be. It shows that if we can, if there's platforms and things like the Hull History Nerd channel and, and, and things that we can do in, on, the, on the podcast and in, in the Royal Society, if we can help people that don't have access to that academia to find those stories because the appetite yeah. is so clearly there in these places. Absolutely. I think this is the, the one downside of, of being in academia is you are hanging out with other people in academia and you're talking in academic terms. So your, your interests there are guided more by the academic world than they are by what people necessarily want to hear on the street. And again, this is where, where the social media stuff like, like we're doing really comes in. You can kind of like... Um, you can take some of that fascinating history uh, and and work it into a, a digestible chunk for people to sort of go, that's really interesting. I never knew that. That's really cool. Wow, I walk past that every day on my way to work. I never even knew that that's what that used to be. You know, you get that kind of wonderful reaction from people and it really engages them. And, and I've had so many people just sort of stop me and tell me, how much they've learned about about the city or about Cottingham because I did a few videos there as well and and you know it I think it's lovely to see people engaging with their heritage like that really lovely it really makes me if that makes me happier than anything that I've done on the channel is just the reaction to it yeah well it's um well we can we we can actually both speak towards that as part of our projects or in relation to our projects we do a lot of 
community engagement um, sort of things. And throughout the pandemic, that was a really rewarding part of it because we, we well, I started my PhD about three months before COVID hit. Oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, but we, we managed to maintain the excavations at Brough, the Petrari visit excavations, and it was sort of talking to the public there about what we were doing, about what my research had been. It, it almost got me through it, really. It was kind of just so rewarding seeing how people engage with it. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of speaking of the pandemic, um, obviously uh, your your YouTube career started again in August 2019, <laughs> so a, a fateful few months before everything changed yep i managed to squeeze out my railway series and a couple of docs episodes and 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 then all of a sudden everything got locked down i was just like oh okay so during that time i was also moving house uh me and kate after 15 years had decided that now was probably the time to move in together um so you know yorkshire people were like hence we're very we're never hasty um so i was having to go through all of that and not be able to travel and not being able to get into town to to do the rest of the videos everything just kind of ground to a halt for a few months um and then i started thinking you know what actually i need to do some more videos i really do people keep sort of getting in touch and saying oh have you stopped making videos now that's a real shame so i was really looking forward to the next ones and i'm thinking well i haven't no i'm just kind of waiting until things have gotten a bit better i have a couple of vulnerabilities to covid so i was like being doubly cautious before you know heading out anywhere um so i started to do little episodes around Cottingham which is where I live now and I started to do some episodes on the, the history of the Snicket's of Cottingham and how they're actually the fossilized remnants of country lanes that have kind of become calcified as Cottingham grew into the suburb that it is today um, and they went down an absolute storm with people you know they really were incredibly popular um, especially the one about Snuff Mill Lane I got so many so many lovely comments about that um, I went for a walk down Snuff Mill Lane a few weeks after that video went out and, and the guy who lives in the cottage halfway down sort of said, hey, oh, you're that bloke on YouTube, aren't you? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Did you watch the video? He goes, yeah, place has become like a bloody racetrack since you did that video. Everyone wants to come for a walk down here. I'm like, oh, really sorry. <laughs> I felt really bad about that. <laughs> That's really... Uh, so I grew up in Cottingham. I moved, oh, moved right. there from uh, Bowfoot Close that... I, it still exists um in 2000 to live in Cottingham so that's it's really interesting what you're saying about the Snickets because like that's where I used to hang out with my mates walk yeah. to school through there and and yeah Snuff Malay and that's I felt like a real blast from the past when you when you brought that up um, yeah and it's a fascinating thing as well because of course it's basically Snuff Malay is the is the last remaining bit of the old road into Cottingham because it, it can, if you look at it on a map, it's just fascinating how Snuff Mill Lane just comes down and then just continues down Cottingham Road mm. line-wise. It's just, a, here we go, it's just Cot Road. But that little bit just got chopped off and withered and it's just still the country lane that it was hundreds of years ago, which I, I absolutely love. There's that little stretch when you get just over the railway line where there's trees and bushes on each side and you think, this can't have changed that much since the 1300s, 1400s. Yeah. There would have been a bit more sort of churn of mud from the hoof tracks and cartwheels but it would have been very similar very similar and i love that i love that that how things just get stuck in amber almost mm. sometimes um another another thing we wanted to sort of touch on um in what you're saying about this this public engagement side of it and sort of seeing people react mm. um where do you really see yourself within the the i'm going to say the discipline of history um between sort of academic between these public groups like the whole maritime 
um, project and things like that where where do you see yourself between those things I think what I do is I package up what what other people find and I deliver it in a in a, in a parcel that's edible because I think a lot of the time when when um, big things like the maritime thing happen they do a lot of events which is great that's fantastic for public engagement and i think that is a wonderful thing that they're doing uh, and same with the south blockhouse dig as well the, the, they opened it up for members of the public to come and have a look around and, and, and a talk that is wonderful but a lot of people don't necessarily know about these things so what i do is i amplify it i kind of take the stuff they've learned or the stuff that they're telling talking about and, and telling us um and i just broadcast it on youtube so people who didn't necessarily know about the South Blockhouse dig will not get to miss out because I've got footage of the South Blockhouse dig on my video um, and an interview with with the archaeologists in charge. So, it, you know, people who are like, oh, is that closed? Oh, I was going to go and have a look at that. I've, I've seen loads of people who have been gutted that it's actually finished now and it's been filled in. Um, I'm like, don't worry, you'll be able to watch my video. I've got I've got footage of it. You'll see. Oh, really? Did you get get chance to get footage? Yeah. I did. It's great. <laughs> and I've got a nice wide angle lens so you can see the whole thing, which is really good. So I suppose on, on that note, what is your video processing? So, so you, you say you take little chunks from, from different things. How does it go from you've, you've seen something on a walk, thinking that might be a nice video. How does it go from idea to you're producing it and you're getting thousands of views on it? For me, the main thing is narrative. You've got to find a narrative because... Uh, there are a lot of people on YouTube who do history videos about stuff, but a lot of them don't get the narrative thing and they just info dump stuff. You might find a, 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 a video on the history of railways, for instance, where someone just says, and this, this uh, station opened in 1862 and it closed in 1893, but then opened again in, and, and that isn't engaging particularly. It's interesting if you're interested in that, but it is an info dump. And after about 20 minutes, you just kind of go a bit numb and you find you're not actually taking any of that in. But if you have a story, if you have a, a narrative of why is this railway here? What's the story behind that railway? Like the Victoria Dockline was the first one that I did. And straight away, the narrative was, was easy to find. It was that link of linking Victoria Dock with the rest of the railway network. So it was an industrial line. Straight away, you've got that story. You've got the story then of, of the spares off to the Withensee and, and Hornsey railways. You've got the, the reawakening of all the, the stations on the line. And then you've got its decay and disappearance and what's left um, for us to look at today. So it, it was a nice, easy to look at story. The Hull and Hornsey and Hull and Withensee branches proved to be a bit of a challenge on that front because they're both railway lines that go through Holderness through lots of little stations and end up at the seaside. How do you make those different? And what I, the, the, that was the point where I had one of those kind of light bulb moments. I was like, ah, right, okay. So I made the episode about the Withensee Railway, about the idea of Brightonification, this thing of where they would take a, a small coastal resort and then build it up with the railway into something bigger so that people could come as a holiday destination you know Widensee was just a small fishing village with a hundred people living in it where before the railway turned up and then they turned up built a promenade built guest houses and a hotel and a station and it suddenly it was, it was people from west riding had come in to stay for their holidays and that was like a, a, a big thing so that episode was about brightonification the Hornsey episode 
was about the transformation of rural England through the railways and all those little stations in the middle were, were the important story, the important narrative element of it. So the two different videos about two very similar lines but with a different story and a different emphasis and a weight. And that, to me, is the important bit. You find something that you're interested in but then you find the, the story to tell about it. And once I've got a story to tell about it, that's when I can start planning the video and scripting it and, and doing some of my research. Uh, I'm quite fortunate now in that I've actually got quite a lot of books at home, so I don't have to go into Whole History Centre as often as I used to. Um, a very kind chap donated about 150 books to me, which were really good. They weren't just like um, photo books of, of old Hull. They were like proper little pamphlets that you, the sort that I use as sources already in this history centre. I'm like, oh, I've used this one three times already. Brilliant. Now I've got my own copy of it. And of course, I go to the whole history centre and they're always selling off old stock as well for like 10p. And I'm like, yep, I'll have that and that and that and that and that. And will I need that? I don't care. I'm going to get it anyway because it's 25p. It, it's great. So I've now got this lovely little library of local history books uh, at home which is great so I can just I can just sit and do my research in front of the computer whilst writing my script so it's brilliant um once I've done that then I, I kind of go out and start filming b-roll so that's basically the beauty shots so I get the good camera on the tripod or on the on the gimbal and start getting some nice shots of whatever it is I'm filming um trying to my Kate always says try and make it look beautiful and I do always try to make things look beautiful. I was trying to find the right angles and the right light and, and so forth. And then finally, I do all my pieces to camera. And that's the, the last step, really. And sometimes the process can take a couple of weeks. And sometimes the process can take two years, as it is with my King George V episode. Because <laughs> I do have footage that I took two years ago, just before COVID hit. Um, it's still sitting on my hard drive. I've got some beautiful footage from being shown around King George Dock by ABP. Um, I've got a brilliant shot of a ship coming through towards and through the, the lock. And, and up close footage of a locomotive being loaded with, with stuff off the docks. Still got that sat on my hard drive. It was my first outing with my new camera. I've still never been able to use it because I haven't got around to doing that episode yet. <laughs> but I will, I promise. I think just one thing I wanted to touch on in, in what you've said there is actually how much of your own research is in these videos. Because, I mean, when we were looking as, as tour guides, at particularly watching things like the dog videos, because, I mean, my first, my undergraduate thesis was on the whole dog company. So I love the whole dog company. I yeah. think they're fascinating and hilarious at most points throughout the history. <laughs> they are. <laughs> but the amount of, it was clear from those videos alone that the amount of your own, like, personality and research that's in those videos. And I think sometimes if, it, if you say... If you, I think there's probably people in departments that we've both worked in that you could say we're doing a podcast or we've got a YouTube channel and immediately that that can sometimes be a, a wall that a wall goes up straight away and think well you're not it's not real but yeah. the amount of research that goes into things like your videos is, is clear for people watching them so I think you're just talking a little bit about actually how much research is, is involved in producing yeah. those sorts of videos I don't often go to the granular level I, I will often just sit and read a bunch of books that already exist and I always find that the best books are some of the really old ones because they cover little odd aspects of, of stuff that you, you only find mentioned briefly in a couple of others and they're glossed over. Um, but yeah, there's these little pamphlets of books like the, the Holonese Riding Railways and stuff that are only about 40 or 50 pages long, but they contain some really interesting nuggets and stories. Um, 
and the Hull and Barnsley Railway that someone wrote a couple of volumes on that and they were fascinating sources for, for a lot of stuff so I do rely a lot on other people's work that they've already done in those but I like to look at different sources and pull stories out from stuff that isn't stuff that you could just find on Wikipedia because I, I think people rely on Wikipedia and Wikipedia can be wrong because it's edited by anybody you know it just takes anyone just to go on there and say actually Henry VIII had seven wives and you're doing your homework on that oh yes Henry VIII and his seven wives and everyone's going no no six there were six no I was on Wikipedia oh no and you didn't use Wikipedia as a source it's that kind of thing you know um so I, I do try and, and and get a bit further and sometimes I make mistakes Sometimes I, I make mistakes. I'm dyscalculic, so sometimes I get numbers wrong, which is why I, I these days have learned from that. And most of my dates tend to be sometime in the 1860s because I don't want to get it wrong because I will and I have. Um, and there, were, there was a couple of occasions where I've just read something somewhere in one source, remembered it and then just gone with it. And then afterwards been like, oh, no, that's really badly wrong. And then had to go do another bit in my, like the, town walls video where i apologize for getting something wrong and, and correct the record um so you know it, it's not always perfect so when it comes to granular stuff sometimes i do find sources coming my way which is wonderful um when i said that i was doing an episode on the ferries and this is a great thing about what i do is i've now got this audience of people that i can throw things out to and say if you've got any photos or stories or information about mm. this subject just get in touch. And this woman sent me this wonderful, wonderful thing, which was a hearing. It was a transcript of a hearing from 1880. Um, a great-great-grandfather was the captain of a skipper on... Uh, was Sorry, the captain of a skipper. He was the skipper of a, of, a, of a ferry, the Manchester, that had been involved in a collision with a trawler. And she said, well, I've got this. I don't know if it'll be of any use. And I'm like, well, it'll always be interesting to read. I don't know whether or not I'll get to use it. And I read it and it was hilarious. So I had to use it. It was just this brilliant story of a drunken trawler captain basically playing chicken with a ferry during the middle of the night with just one running light on. And it's just, ah, oh, I was just reading it, just thinking, this is brilliant. I so have to use this. It's such a wonderful slice of life, like detailed slice of life on the Humber in the 1880s. And, you know, that's the kind of primary source that I love to sort of, come across every so often mostly it's secondary mostly it's people who've collated stuff but every so often you just get a little nugget of, of, of primary source that adds a wonderful bit of color to to an episode yeah definitely yeah it's, it's a really crucial part i think of working with anything that's sort of a bit so with archaeology it's usually quite vague some of the stuff you're looking for yeah um unless it's post 1990 when anything built anywhere has an archaeological investigation attached to it and it's it's often quite nice sort of talking to the public about it and someone will remember that they they had a extension put in back in the 70s and they'll say oh we we found a bunch of these kinds of pot and they'll bring in photos that their dad took and suddenly you've got oh, a, a new period of time appearing over there um yeah. so so spe speaking about your your videos um your latest one uh, on the citadel and the castle um sort of if you'd like to get into kind of some of the sources you were using um because obviously there's mm. not going to be many primary sources i'd imagine from, not, from that not time a period. huge amount whole history center actually had some uh, actually have got the plans 
for them, um, which was wonderful. So I, I did actually get to spend some time in the History Centre filming those and, and pouring over them and, and being a little bit giddy about it because um, it was quite exciting. They're very old. Um, uh, that, that was about the only primary stuff that I used. Everything else came from uh, a selection of, of books on Hull's history uh, that I've... And other bits and pieces that I've sort of discovered from things people have written on Tudor gun forts and mentioned Hull Castle mm. in. Um, and obviously chatting with the, the archaeologists as well down mm. at the South Blockhouse. That taught me some stuff that I didn't know, which is quite interesting stuff. Uh, about um, about layers of archaeology and the fact that they've kind of dug trenches through there to put drains and, and, and water supplies and so forth in. So you've got this 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 you've got the archaeology of the fort, and then you've got the archaeology of of utilities, as Peter called it, which is <laughs> which is a, a lovely kind of addition and a thing to to learn about it. But then you make your own discoveries as well when you're kind of looking at the maps. Um, I've got these wonderful maps that show the archaeology of Hull. Uh, and the, the town walls and the citadel specifically overlaid on a map of Hull. Uh, and one of the things that really surprised me was was just how Great Union Street between Witham and Clarence Street absolutely perfectly follows the, 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 the curtain wall that used to run from the North Blockhouse down to the, the, the castle in the middle. So clearly that road was just built on top of the rubble of, of the wall, which mm. is fascinating. One of the things that, that I've noticed looking at the plans of of these these forts is the cannons pointing inwards as well as outwards so yeah well that's that... a big part of my my video is oh, it, right. it, we start out talking about why the, the the fort was built and of course we cover the pilgrimage of grace which was the rebellion the catholic rebellion in the north of england and hull willingly um housed them so when henry the eighth came up north to finally meet out some justice to them um because he was finally secure enough with his position with some of the, the, the support that he had around the country after pardoning them twice. Um, he came up to Hull and was A, shocked that we didn't have much defending the port side of the city at all. Uh, but B, he wanted to also put in something in place to remind the people of Hull, I'm the king and my arm is very, very long. So he built this massive wall on the other side of the of the river with these gun forts, some of which were pointing out, some of which were pointing to the river, and some of which were pointing at the city. And he staffed them with his own garrison of troops who weren't locals, so they were loyal to the king and not to the locals. And the message was very clear. Mess with me, I will flatten your city. <laughs> so it was it was an exercise of power as well as being a, a very sensible precaution against invasion in Europe because of course you know, he did the reformation where he broke with the Catholic Church which was widely regarded as a very bad idea and made a lot of people very angry as Douglas Adams once said I love those th those are the stuff that when when I'm looking at that sources of stuff, those those little facts of things like the cannons also point at Hull are just the the things that I love more and especially doing things with like the Hull Dot Company I mean the, yeah. the, their archives are filled with stuff that are just hilarious to to the to, to outside viewers, but and people don't realize actually how, how difficult it made things for for Hull. But I suppose on that on that note of finding these little things, do you have a favourite little nugget of information that you've come across in making these videos? There's a few. Um, I mean, the, the aforementioned hearing was 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 a wonderful nugget. Um, and to, to have that kind of, I love that because it came to me simply because I have a. a, a people that I can reach out to who can provide this sort of stuff. 
um, and, and that was a lovely thing. But from my earliest uh, videos, the railway videos, there was, uh, when I was reading about the Hull and Barnsley Railway, one of the things that really, really got to me was how, like we think today, we're, we're kind of all used to the fact, I think, that Twitter and Facebook are full of fake accounts that are being used for political reasons and so forth. Um, but they were doing that in the Victorian age. You know, the whole Barnsley Railway was in competition with another railway for competing for investment to build this line from Hull to the coalfields of South Yorkshire. But the two sides were writing letters into the local newspaper under false names like uh, Black Diamond and Anti-Humbug and, and basically dissing the other side. It was brilliant. They were hiring poets to write Victorian diss tracks about each other and, and distribute them in pamphlets on the street. I mean, that is social media manipulation in the 19th century. And I just thought that was like mind-blowing. I was like, there nothing, really is nothing new, is there? Propaganda is propaganda, and it it always sort of like sneaks into whatever way people use to communicate on mass. And the newspapers were the social media of the day. Yeah, and I think the that I mean, as I say, that the dot company stuff's full of that. The, the pamphlet exchange, the pamphlet exchange in the city centre between the dot company and the, and the people are full of hilarious. The, to read. the whole dot company is brilliant. I love them. I I, I think my favourite story that I ever found was where they were asked. I'm sure you came across it that they were asked to build. When they, were, when they were constructing Albert Dock, they were they were basically asked by a steamship company to start building docks to suit the ships that were coming rather than the ships of the day. And then they just wrote back and said, build your ships to suit the size of my docks. Yeah. And I was like, it's, <laughs> it's just wonderful. And it's these I, stories that... I did find that. that I was, just love them. Yeah, it's one of those brilliant moments where you just think, oh my God, you literally had to build Victoria Dock because if you hadn't, somebody else would have done it first. Same with Albert Dock. And you're still being arrogant to the people who are using your docks. And it just made me so happy when I when I got to the point, like this is another future video that's coming um, on Alexandra Dock. When Alexandra Dock, the first and only um, independent dock in the city, was built, they built it with a massive lock. And the whole dock company went, oh, well, maybe we'll make St. Andrew's Dock just a small dock then for trawlers. We don't care. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I just they're fascinating, and it's what and it's. But as we said, you know, moving full circle, it, it's the, it's those stories that immediately snap and engage with yeah. people, and it, it, you can draw draw people in to then tell them more stories about actually why Hull City Centre is shaped the way it is, and Absolutely. why it, and, and what it, the docks. I think it humanizes the characters because yeah. this is one of the things that I think history doesn't necessarily do that well at school is humanizing the people involved in it, and it's like we all know that Wilberforce. Um, campaigned against slavery but what a lot of us don't know is that he was actually quite a, a small frail sickly man but he could talk the hind legs off an elephant apparently he was an absolutely rousing speaker and, and that's part of the reason when you look at the uh, why he got slavery abolished that is part of it part of his personality this ability to just stand up and eulogize like a proper georgian politician that is all part of it that's a you know it wasn't that he just kind of wrote a piece of paper and people went mm, yeah, okay we'll sign that it was it was a, a a bit of oratory and a bit of um charisma that was involved in it from this strange small frail man who looked like he might snap if if a wind caught him the wrong way and yet he would become big. I think one politician said he was a small mouse of a man who became a roaring lion at the debate table. And it's like, yeah, that's the kind of colour that you miss uh, when you just talk about historical figures in the abstract. 
you got to talk about them as people. That's why I always go to town on George Hudson as this fascinating character because I kind of vacillate with George Hudson. Yes, he was a massive fraudster, but yes, he was also a visionary who spent most of his fraud money on building railways and creating this huge network that made the Northeast a real powerhouse for transport and industry. So do we hate him or do we kind of grudgingly respect him? I'm not. I, I'm still undecided on that, but I love the fact that you can talk about this and about his his kind of the fact that he is a very dubious character and you don't have to just talk about facts you can talk about the things he did like you know running away when he stopped becoming an mp because mps couldn't be tried and, and imprisoned for debt but when he lost the election he ran to the continent and lived in a string of seedy hotels in france so i suppose we've mentioned you know the new your newest video being on the whole citadel mm. and, the, and then castle what else? What other video topics have you got in the in the immediate sort of future that people can look forward to? All sorts. Um, at the moment, I, I got a really good response from my um, Lost Villages series, uh, the first one that I did on Skullcurts. Um, I think a lot of people hear these names of districts and they don't really realise that they are the names of a village that has been swallowed up by the urban growth of the city. And I think, again, that, that gives people a, a level of relating to their surroundings that, that perhaps they didn't have before. A number of people who have got in touch with me over the Skullcoats one said, I had no idea Skullcoats was so interesting and that it wasn't a, even a proper part of Hull. <laughs> Not for years until it was incorporated in, you know. Um, and, and I think that I'd been looking for a long time for a way of looking at the individual areas of Hull in more detail and when I came upon the idea of doing the Lost Villages that seemed to just click right for me because it the inner city areas obviously are all villages and the the outer city areas are all more modern housing estates so I've got the, the Lost Villages of Hull I'm be working out over the next year or so but after that I'm going to do a series about the new villages of Hull which covers the the housing estates like Bransholm and Long Hill, Orchard Park North Hull that erupted in the 20th century and also places like Garden Village that were built by um, James Reckitt for instance they've got their own interesting history in terms of the social aspect of you know, building houses decent quality housing for workers all of that is a kind of a um, it, it pivots around the Addison Act in the in the 1910s where people suddenly realised that actually housing all your workers in the worst possible way in houses that were just had like shared a single latrine at the bottom of the thing maybe didn't make them the best workers or the best soldiers because World War One, of course really brought that to the fore you had all these really sickly ill poor people who'd been recruited and sent to the front and that's what Addison played on you know he said you don't I think his, his slogan was you don't get grade A soldiery from grade C housing yeah. And that won over the Conservatives, who were all about the, the the army, and it won over the Liberals, who were all about improving the quality of housing. And so you had this explosion of, of good housing in North Hull and Preston Road. And, and again, you had the private sector doing this garden village thing where, you know, building proper houses with bathrooms for your workers. It, it became this whole thing that changed the way that we live, really. Yeah. Uh, had it not been for that, we would still have those slums. Yeah, wow, it's some really exciting stuff coming up by the sounds of it. Um, yeah, I think so. It excites me, but then I'm a history nerd, so... <laughs> oh, you know, you, so, so building off of that, if people do want to find out about your content, um, do you have some socials, the, the YouTube channel itself, like what, where can yeah, people find yeah. you? If you just search for Whole History Nerd on YouTube, you will find me 
I'll be mentioned very quickly on there. You'll see my videos. Um, I'm, I've got a Facebook page where I keep people updated and a Twitter where I keep people updated on what I'm working on and photos of records that I've bought from shops on Instagram um, sometimes. Um, <laughs> and if, if people really enjoy them and they want to, to help me out with the channel because, you know, financial support is always helpful because YouTube really doesn't pay that much in terms of the views. Um, then I do have a Patreon and a coffee, Ko-Fi. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's coffee. I have a coffee um, and also uh, a GoFundMe. So people can just make donations to the channel to help out. And it all helps with petrol and um, buying new research materials and uh, buying a sandwich while I'm out somewhere. You know, just anything like that really helps out. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Um, we really appreciate you coming on and supporting like these sorts of public engagement activities that we get to do and, and you know, making all this stuff more accessible. So Absolutely. Know. I'm one hundred percent behind that. And I, I was I recently discovered about um I think another another well known historian, uh Lucy Worsley's has this whole thing about public history and, and making it accessible to people. And I think that's a huge thing. And I, I, I didn't realise that's what I was doing. And that's what you're doing too. So I think anything that can make the public more um easily access history and their own heritage i think the better yeah so i encourage everyone that's listened to today to go and check out whole history nerd on youtube and of course if you've enjoyed listening to us today then you can come back and listen to the next episode of royce cast but thanks very much for coming on and thanks for listening <laughs>